You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. You want to run that by me again, the uh, reading part? Just Dude, I don't read. You, <laughs> now you're making me read like again and again. How we always uh, I, the, we you and I cannot do a, an interview in which I don't. I'm not hostile at you. Oh, good. Are we still doing le- levels? <laughs> hostile interviews are always the best. You know. Are, are we still doing levels? Are, we're am, going. I, am I reading for levels? Uh, no, we're rolling. We're ro- oh, so now oh, okay, so this is real. Yeah, I'm reading for real. For real. For reals. I okay. Well, now I'm uncomfortable. This is being the chronicles of Abby Normal, completely fucked servant of the vampire flood. I have failed, left my duty undone like so much dog poop on the gloaming sidewalk of the tragedy that is my life. Even as I sit here at the Metreon Starbucks writing this, the frost slaves seem to move like silver-eyed zombies, and my non-fat soy amaretto mochaccino has gone as bitter as snake bile, which is like the bitterest bile you can get. If there wasn't a totally hot guy two tables away acting like he doesn't notice me, I would weep. But real tears make your mascara run, so I am staying chilly in my despair. Your loss, cute guy, for I have been chosen. Suffer, bitch. Uh, Did you want me to keep reading? Uh, yeah, actually. L- let me make this clear. I don't read. I'm now finished. <laughs> okay, Well, good. now let's do an interview. All right, good. Close the book. There we go. Mm-hmm. Christopher Moore is the winner of the Quill Award and author of the best-selling novels that include A Dirty Job and his latest, the sequel to 1995's Bloodsucking Fiends, You Suck. Welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you. Chris, let's talk a little bit about your supernatural San Francisco setting. You've been working on this for a while, haven't you? I've been working in it for a while, I think, um, on and off over about la- the last uh, 12 years, I guess. I wrote my first San Francisco set book in 95 and then um, returned again for a dirty job in 2004, and then um, this one has just come out. Why did you choose San Francisco initially? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I was living on the central coast of California, and it was close. And second, I just thought it would be a great city to have a a vampire story in. Uh, I wanted an urban setting because my other books had been sort of set in smaller towns. And and San Francisco has a great contrast of light and dark as a city. Tell us a little bit about—it has a lot of contrast, and you play upon that a lot in in this— in your books, you know, the, the grit and the beauty, the, the wealth and the poverty. Tell us how you, you work that contrast to get some humor. Well, I think that the city sort of has exactly, it's, it, it's an extraordinarily wealthy city at one end, but it's got a huge population of homeless people. So you have these two populations interacting in my books because they tend to, you know, or try to ignore each other. And then you have this uh, sort of aesthetic beauty because it's a very pretty city. But you also have these sort of dark neighborhoods and and neighborhoods that really change when it gets dark. They go from being sort of very pretty and quaint to being just a little bit scary. And that's a perfect uh, contrast for a horror novel or a a humor horror novel anyway. It's a small town in its own way, too. And so you have, you know, all comedy comes out of the interaction of, of disparate elements. And so you have disparate elements coming in contact in this little sort of compact city on the on the peninsula. Your first novel in the vampire horror humor vein was Bloodsucking Fiends. And I want to ask, what made you want to write a romantic comedy with fangs? Actually, uh, it, it wasn't my first choice. I had uh, 
I had to submit three ideas to my publisher at the time because I had a book due on a contract, and then they would pick one. And I wanted to do a book about a blues singer from Clarksdale, Mississippi, who goes to Chicago to find his fortune, but in his 80s, not in his 30s, like Muddy Waters and B.B. King. And um, they picked this idea that was like a thrown-off two-line thing. Oh, there's this guy who has a girlfriend, and she's a vampire, and he puts her in the freezer. And uh, it was from a piece I'd done on radio, like, I don't know, 10 years before that, I think, for... uh, I used to do a, a radio show called uh, Nightshades Cafe where I would do little stories that I wrote and, and then play music in between. I sort of had, you know, errors pointing to it going, oh, you wouldn't want this one. But they called and uh, and said, oh, we want you to do the vampire book. And I was a little bit chagrined. But so it, it wasn't initially my decision. But once I did it, it was a lot of fun. So I sort of left it open for a sequel. As you approach the, the vampire story, that's a fairly well-worked genre and I'm wondering how you came at it to bring your own fresh approach to it. Well, the thing that I hadn't seen, or there were certain cliches in the genre that I I wanted to address and I didn't want to play into. And one is there always seems to be, you know, somebody uh, in the Mike Myers movie, they, they call Captain Exposition. You know, there always seems to be like the Van Helsing character who says, and vampires can do this, and this is what kills them, and they can't cross running water. And it sort of lays the rules out for the audience. And I basically wanted someone to get turned into a vampire who didn't get the instruction book and who has to sort of deal with all the insecurities that she had in her day-to-day life as sort of a mid-20s assistant at an insurance company to, to dealing with, you know, so she she carries all of the insecurities of her personal relationship into her, her life as a vampire. And I hadn't seen that before. Everybody, as you, as you said, basically had explored the mythical possibilities of blood and history and, and the genesis of, of the vampire race. So I, I felt like I was released from having to even address that. And I just wanted to get real characters and, and sort of react from a place of, of how a real person would, you know, they still have to do their laundry. Nobody ever says anything about that. You know, um, especially if you're sleeping in dirt. My vampires don't. But, you know, you never you have to sleep in your own soil, yet you're always clean and in a tuxedo. How do you work that out? Um, Someone's got to do laundry. And and so I basically thought I've got to address that. You have a lot of fun with the the realism of of being a vampire as as a source of humor. There's one of vampires no longer have any need for bodily functions and and a lot of that stuff. So tell me a little bit about did you map all this stuff out before you went or did you just plunge in headlong and, and discover it? I sort of uh, I, I sort of made certain assumptions and then wrote the story uh, uh, as I came across those. And one of the, in the first book, you have Jody, who who is this twenty six year old secretary who gets turned on her way home from work one night, and she takes on a minion who is Tommy, this nineteen year old guy who works nights at the Marina Safeway, and they have arguments that sort of are the domestic. Uh, issues that any couple faces, except theirs are, why, why should I buy t- toilet paper? I don't go anymore, and things like that. And, um, and uh, you know, she sort of pulls rank on him in that there's certain functions she doesn't even, you know, participate in anymore, and therefore she shouldn't have to run the errands that, that take care of those, like, for instance, going to the grocery store and getting food, um, because he is the food. Uh, so, so it just, it, it was just playing it scene to scene, saying, okay, this is what you do when you're a couple and you're getting together and, and you're dealing with, you know, the problem that one of you isn't alive. Um, and, and so it just sort of came in the sequence of how you would come across these things in life, and, and it played up for comedy, I guess. 
one of the things you do very well is to play with our perception of people who dress like vampires and look like vampires, but obviously aren't. And tell us a little bit about, did you explore that subculture at all? I observed it. I, w- I was a little bit too old and a little bit too uh, creeped out uh, to to really try to immerse myself in it. But I had been sort of on the edge of the teen angst alienated culture for a lot of years because I was underemployed for a lot of years and, and wrote in cafes and hung out in cafes. And there's sort of an axiom that if you sit still long enough, you'll disappear and people will start to behave as as if they would if you weren't around. So I would sit outside of this cafe in Central California and, and watch these very fierce-looking punk and goth kids who frightened locals, actually. You'd watch uh, sort of the suburban crowd walk in, in great arcs around them on the sidewalk to avoid contact with them. But as soon as the citizens had passed, you know, they, they'd resume their MacGyver game that they were playing out on the sidewalk, this big game of pretend and what can you make out of a big pen and a book of matches to, to save you all. And I realized that they were just spooky kids playing dress-up. As you know, sort of the blogosphere developed. I started looking at the blogs of uh, of goth kids, and they were so funny because there there was this great this great uh, chasm between despair and and total goofy kidness that that they would transcend in a matter of one sentence. It's like you know, I I must contemplate the. the the darkness that is my being, and then the next thing. But mom got me a green Care Bear for Christmas, and it was uh, it was so funny. I would find myself giggling, and I thought, okay, I've got to I've got to address this fact that that these kids sort of romanticize uh, this this whole thing. And again, it goes back to the the practicality of being a vampire as opposed to the romantic idea of being a vampire. And in this book, I actually sort of bring the two face to face. Your first book was written in 1995. Mm-hmm. The follow-up came out in 2007. That's a 12-year gap, but you write them seamlessly as if one follows the other, and it really works. Uh, didn't that chasm scare you? It really did. The thing that scared me the most was the change in the city of San Francisco. Jody and Tommy live in an area called the Soma, south of Market Street, um, in in the first book. And in 1994, when I was researching that book, that, that area was like artist's lofts and Pakistani restaurants and transmission places. And then the internet happened, and the geographical center of the internet was the Soma in San Francisco. So what had once been a lot of abandoned warehouses were, were now these uh, extremely expensive office loft spaces you know, with basketball goals and espresso machines and, and pinball machines and so forth, and as well as you know, upscale sort of uh, techno-yuppie condos and so forth. And then the Metreon had been built, which is this giant high-tech Sony uh, entertainment center by Yerba Buena. So the neighborhood had had changed in the extreme, and including in that was the rents went up by about a thousand percent. And I was really worried about that. What I ended up doing was talking to a book club, a vampire book club, uh, was meeting at a store called Borderlands in the Mission in San Francisco. And it was all people basically in their 20s. who were sort of on the edge of goth culture, and they read a vampire book every month and discuss it. And I teleconferenced with them, and I asked them, what should I do, you know, with this 12-year time period? And they just said, oh, ignore it. And so, uh, you know, using my laser-like novelist powers, I went, oh, okay, I'll just ignore it. And it it worked fine. I just acted like, you know, uh, life went on the next day, and there just happened to be the Sony Metreon. Didn't I mention that in the first book? 
and actually a couple of scenes that uh, take place, or at least referred to uh, there. So uh, it was at some level bothersome to me, but it turned out in writing the book that that, uh, it it worked out fine. One of the things that's really fun about this book, and and really all your books, is the real world is so absurd that— when you start spinning in the supernatural elements, they seem perfectly believable. And one of the things you talk about in, in the Blood Sucking Fiends and in the new book is uh, turkey bowling. Right. So once you've got turkey bowling going at the Safeway, the vampires, hey, I can buy that. So tell us, did you ever go turkey bowling? I did. I, I ran a night crew when I was Tommy's age, when I was 19. I worked uh, on a night crew in a grocery store in Ohio, and we had a very strong retail clerks union, so we had uh, 13 guys to do the work of four. And um, and I and I was in charge, and we were all under 23 years old, so it was just a, a complete circus. And um, turkey bowling was the least of the things that we did. Um, I actually had guys who would bring firearms into work and shoot product off of the shelves with plastic bullets and it just it, it goes on and on and on it was just the, the horrors of unsupervised uh, adolescence or or the, I guess just post adolescence uh, um, in the middle of the night with sort of a grocery store to play in and uh, uh, it I worked a lot of it into the book but there was some stuff that was even in a book that was peopled with uh, you know Blue prostitutes and and vampires. I didn't think they'd believe some of the stuff that that we did working on a night crew when I was a kid. And speaking of blue prostitutes, I have to say that blue is the only character almost in any of your books I really just didn't like. And I'm wondering when you did when you created her. I mean, in every other book, even the the really really bad guys are you really like them. You really like all your characters. And I get the feeling you didn't like blue very much. And so I'm wondering, tell us a little bit about creating this character and why she's just not very nice. Well, she sort of, uh, she has her own history and you sort of get the feel for for her history. Actually, she has more backstory than most of the characters in that sort of, uh, her circle in, in the book, which are the animals, the, the night crew that Tommy used to work with at the Safeway. And... I think I show how she gets to where she is, but but I think anybody who works, uh, who is compromised, let's say their self-image to to become a prostitute and 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 gone so far as to have themselves dyed blue, um, they're going to have compromised morals and ethics, I guess, and and so what immediately seems like maybe me making judgment on her. I think I, I just, I sort of show where she starts as the cheddar queen of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and how she ends up as a as a dyed blue hooker in Las Vegas and uh, taking advantage of these of these crazy horn dogs from San Francisco with a lot of money in their pockets because they've sold the art collection of an old vampire that they killed or almost killed. And, um, I, you know, I kind of liked Blue. I she she's she's very Cruella Deville in in, in this book. Is she she sort of takes the place of amid all these people that are sort are all these creatures that are sort of monsters. She's really scary because she's her self interest is dialed up to eleven, and everybody else has this sort of sense of well maybe I shouldn't do that or maybe I should consider other people's uh, agendas. Uh, Blue doesn't do that, and then, but at the end, she's sort of redeemed by by the fact that she's frustrated so often in the book, and and there's a point where she stops to, uh, 
she's been turned to a vampire because she want, wants to be, and she stops to, to get one of the animals, and he happens to be in his living room, which is full of grow lights for his pot, and as soon as he opens the door, she bursts into flames because of all the UV light that hits her. Um, and she, she just can't get it right. You know, they go to the zoo. You know, they can't think of any place to, to find a victim. They end up at the zoo, and, like, half of them get arms torn off because they think, oh, I'm a super being now, and they try to, you know, drink blood from a tiger and so forth. And, and you know, she she really is sort of the wily coyote of this book. And uh, so I don't know. It's the same way. Yeah, she's the bad guy, but I don't, I don't dislike her. I guess I sort of – I get her, and, and she was so much fun because of that because it was, she would just keep – you know, going and putting on the Acme rocket shoes, knowing that it was going to blast her into a brick wall no matter what. Okay. Now, we have to talk about my other favorite character, Abby Normal. Tell us who Abby Normal is. Abby Normal is uh, a 16-year-old goth girl who has been waiting all her life for something really dark and mysterious to to happen. And um, she... uh, she first appeared actually in my book, A Dirty Job. She was the best friend of, of the goth girl clerk um, in, in A Dirty Job. Lily was was a major character in that book who worked for a guy who got the job of being death. I'm sort of going off point, but the, it tells you who Abby is. And she's sort of, uh, she she may or may not have an eating disorder. She doesn't think so. She just likes to hurl. And um, she... Uh, you know, she she's just described as the broken puppet kid, or the broke, or the, or the the broken clown kid through through the book, pretty much. You know, so she's sort of this gamine, knock kneed, very savvy, very smart, yeah, city kid who who bumbles into the book more or less and ends up uh, being the minion for Jody and Tommy. Um, because now that Tommy is a vampire in this book, he, they need someone to function during the day for them. And they run into Abby who couldn't think of a better job than, uh, working for an ancient vampire count, which is what Tommy convinces her that he is because he's actually 19, you know, and, you know, 400 is the appropriate age for a vampire, 19, not so much, but, uh, um, she has a lot more back story and back knowledge on on vampires than he does, even though he happens to be one. So, um, she she was just a lot of fun to write. I I researched her uh, by reading blogs um, on vampirefreaks.com, which is has the distinction of actually having three serial killers as members of that website. Um, Accused serial killers? Uh, arrested? Yeah. Arrested? Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sweet. Um, <laughs> But it's a it's a very again it has this you know the thing about Abby that that makes her so much fun is she's she's always battling her perky streak, and uh, and her friend Lily you know t- basically tells her you're just terminally incurably perky and you know this is the bane of her life um, to the point where Lily at one point throws Abby's uh, Nintendo virtual beagle puppy under the number ninety overnight bus tire just because she has to give up her perky streak. And and that was what was fun about reading, you know, the blogs of these kids is again they go from this this very sort of nihilistic uh, despair to this sort of perky gummy bear goofiness in a matter of one set, second, and uh, and that's what Abby does. And and she she became she took the book over basically, you know, the a lot of the book is told in her journal entries, and uh, strange as it it may seem, it's not natural for a middle-aged white guy from the Midwest like me to 
to speak in the voice of a of a sixteen year old goth girl. So that was that was a lot of work to get her the idiom for for Abby down. But as it turned out, it really was fun in the end. It, it doesn't seem like it was a lot of work. It seemed like it it must have flowed so naturally once you got once you got the vibe on that that you could. It seemed like you could just write that every day <laughs> i wish that were the case it was it was it was enormously hard work and every oh, day really? before i yeah every day before i sat down to write i would be reading um uh the you know these blogs on myspace and on vampire freaks for like at least an hour before i'd start so i could pick up that that sort of pattern of speech or pattern of writing that that these kids had and uh, my girlfriend would come into my office and see that i was you know lurking like a giant perv on on uh, the she on these teenage uh, web pages, and she'd be she'd go, oh, the FBI is going to b- bust through the door any second. And I'm going, I really actually am doing research. I have a book, you know. It's um, I'm not interacting. I'm just lurking like a big creepy perv. So, um, but it was it was it was very hard. It was it was really gratifying when it came off, but but it was it was hard to pick it up. One of the things that's fun about uh, supernatural and vampire novels is this necessity that writers have to maintain some semblance of normal reality so that the events you're writing about could have played out in our world. We just didn't read about them in the newspaper. They never get to the newspaper. They never get to the, the news media. So we never hear about these things. They are reported as some kind of other slightly anomalous phenomena or not at all. And I wonder if you care to talk about the the skill and craft of wedging the supernatural into the world in such a way that it can happen and you can have some really wild scenes, but they don't reach our world. Well, I, I think that what happens is that everybody, you assume that people in a city, you know, they have this ability to shrug things off, you know, and so even if you see something very extraordinary, you're like, well, nobody's going to believe I saw that, you know, and and then, you know, and then two hours later, you're thinking, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Um and I think that there's that's what we assume is there's so many people in in such a small area that they will just shrug it off because the, you know it's all well and good that I may have seen you know something creepy crawling out of the sewers, but life goes on. You know the fact is I still have to pay attention to traffic or I'm going to plow into the cab in front of me, and and um, that's how I always look at it is that people just don't have time to stop and go. Oh, by the way, you know there's weird things happening over there. And a lot of it, you know, the, the thing with vampires is that they appear human, you know, so a lot of it just looks like really sort of violent, crazy people. And there's certainly no shortage of that um, in, the, in the city. And, and so, you know, you can write it off to, oh, a violent, crazy people again, um, or, a, you know, oh, no, someone has killed another person on the street again, you know, and it's, so what? You know, it's it, that's why they have the police log. So it's it's not as as uh, with vampires in particular, it, it's not quite as uh, difficult to work it into the fabric of reality because everybody's really focused on their own life and the own the the woof and warp of their own life rather than you know what's going on around them. You know, uh, and if it's not relevant to them, they ignore it. Tell us a little bit about. Uh, how you work out the the mythos of the vampire? Yours are are somewhat different than than our standard issue vampires, and I'm wondering 
how how you develop this to a make it seem more realistic and b make it seem funny. Well, I didn't really want to attack that because I thought there were some very good writers who had sort of taken on the whole history and mythos mythos of the vampires. The thing about a vampire book is it doesn't have to really be consistent with the the body of vampire literature that's out there. It just has to be internally consistent. And so I think the only thing that I really um, addressed was actually chosen, you know, the the elements of, of the, the checklist for vampire powers and weaknesses I chose uh, in my books because I thought they would play out for both suspense and humor. And one was that um, at sort of GMT sunrise and, and sunset, or not GMT, but it, but at, at exact sunrise and exact sunset when the sun uh, uh, breaks the horizon, uh, my vampires either wake up or go out. And they there's no, like, grogginess in between. If they're in a dead run when the sun breaks the horizon, they fall, and they're completely unconscious for, you know, until the sun uh, sets, drops below the horizon. And... Uh, that just made for a lot of, I mean, they knew, you know, they had almanacs and they, they have, you know, in this book, they have watches that are set for the sun, the sunrise. And, you know, an alarm goes off 10 minutes before sunrise so they can find cover in case they happen to not be paying attention. And uh, so it also allowed for a lot of action to happen when they're not available, when they're not on on camera, as you'd say in, in a movie. Um, but that was largely played for for comedy and for suspense because even you know even though I write comedies you know the the engine to drive any fiction is suspense and specifically something that has a horror element like this so you always had to sort of worry were they going to make it to cover by daylight and then at some at some point it becomes Abby's problem to get them in, undercover because they are unconscious and uh, um, that you know, what if someone's blocking the way to where they need to be at at sunup? So uh, that was really the only thing that I think I did anything different on, um, and everything else had either been done or I didn't feel as relevant. There'd been a lot of blood chemistry work in uh, when I wrote the first book leading up to that. A lot of vampire books had you know because AIDS was so in the forefront of consciousness uh, and it's a bloodborne disease. A lot of vampire books had tried to link that, and I just I didn't want to go down that road. I thought there were people that were better qualified to do it, and I basically wanted to play my mythos for what would work uh, in comedy, and that's how I chose what I did. Why did you choose to do the, the specifically the romance aspect? I mean, we've there's a lot of things you could do with the the vampire, but why why vampires in love? And and actually, that's the other thing is that Jody and and Tommy, you know, they don't seem really well suited for one another. Well, I don't. Well, first, that that you know, it is a comedy. Um, second, you know, that's I think all of our weakness, and you know, that's our would be the word. You know, that, that's the chocolate that that kicks in all of our diabetes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's. There's no more fun way to undo a character than than through love. Um, and I just thought initially that the. You know, when the idea occurred to me years ago, when I was gonna when I was doing it on radio, it was just very simply. You know, there are so many things that one has to get over, when pursuing a relationship with another person, 
and to have this added aspect of they don't happen to be the same species, um, I thought would just be a lot of fun to explore. And and so uh, it it gives characters a vested interest in in reacting. Uh, against one another over and over and over again, as opposed to prayer, to uh, to prey and and um, and predator, you know, which is usually the relationship that's pursued in a in a vampire novel. If you have, uh, or the you know, there's the cliche of it's the ancient vampire looking for his young, you know, the analog of his ancient love, which is I, I'm so tired of that. There's been a couple of attempts to uh, to adapt blood-taking fiends to the screen and and they always go in that direction and i think have you guys never seen a movie before do you have no you know you do you not have a problem that that everybody tries this and it always is maudlin and stupid um so uh it, it just seemed it's another element of conflict and it gives it gives characters another agenda you know and and uh and forces them to interact is that they they love each other even though they as you point out have almost nothing in common one thing I really like about this book is this, again, the setting of supernatural San Francisco. I'd like you to talk about this uh, con- uh, this kind of concept. We've seen it. Stephen King does it, and, and I think more novelists are doing it, where they have books that are not necessarily in a series, but where we'll have characters in the same milieu intermixing. And there's a lovely scene in You Suck that's the inverse of the scene in A Dirty Job. It's really, I guess, a great Easter egg for your, your right, readers. and that's exactly what it is. It's it's what it is. It's exactly the same scene told from a different point of view. And in a dirty job, it's told from Charlie's point of view, who runs, you know, who is death but runs death out of a thrift store. And in this one, it's from Jody's point of view, who is the vampire and delivers an object to him after she's taken a victim in North Beach. That was exactly that. It was a reward to my readers who have stuck with my books over the years. Um, the approach that I take to it, however, is that when you write these characters that are sort of everybody in the best example is I, I created a character called the Emperor, who's based on Emperor Norton, um, who is a historical figure in San Francisco, a homeless guy who declared himself Emperor of the city back in the 1860s, and the the cool thing about it was the city recognized his title, and um, and again when I was writing the first book, you know, in the mid 90s. You know, homelessness was sort of at the forefront of of the national consciousness, and I had seen a lot of uh, tourists in San Francisco treating the homeless with you know less respect than anybody deserves, and not so much the locals, but but tourists. And um, I thought, well, what if you had one of these guys that sort of deserved the dignity of of uh, his nuthouse Napoleon title? And I used uh, the emperor. Well. He's a very colorful character, and in the book, everybody knows him. Everybody who comes across him recognizes him. He's a he's a character like any neighborhood has a character that you go, oh, that's the guy. That's the guy with a bird on his head guy, or this happens to be the guy who's declared himself emperor of San Francisco. And and so if I do another, if I set another book in this neighborhood, people are going to know about the same guy. And so he he is in all three of the San Francisco books simply because you couldn't be in North Beach, Chinatown, you know, the financial district where he basically spends most of his time, Russian Hill, um, without seeing a guy that's this out there and, and without knowing who he is. So that's basically what it is, is, is just uh, 
once you create a world, I guess in my head, it just the people live there and and life goes on whether I'm there or not. And uh, that may be, I may get put in therapy for saying that, but it's just how I feel. It's like once I set all these characters in motion, they keep going. You have some really great cop characters too. Uh, tell us a little bit about them, and you you play them for humor as well. That and they also both show up in a dirty job as as well. Right. The, these guys, um, the cop Rivera has been in like five or six of my books, and he he started out in uh, Coyote. Or actually, he was in uh, my first book. He was in Practical, Practical Demon, Demon Keep- Keeping. He yeah, was. He, yeah, he worked. Uh, he worked on the Central Coast then, and then and then. Uh, he has a a brief appearance in in Coyote Blue, and then he has uh, then he comes back strong in Bloodsucking Fiends as a as a homicide investigator. And his partner, he's he's now uh, partners with this guy named uh, oh, what is his first name? Nick Cavuto, who is uh, this big, very gruff uh, sort of you know blackjack and no mercy kind of cop, except he happens to be gay, and um, which I was was something that I. I wanted a really non-cliche gay character, and and I think Nick Cavuto is is definitely that guy. Um, and so they they sort of play parts, pretty big parts, in all three of the San Francisco books. And Rivero has you know is uh, is of a Hispanic background and and uh, is very smart and very sharp. Uh, he's a sharp dresser and sort of. A, he just continually finds himself in situations that. Are, de- are career destroying and uh, <laughs> and he you know he doesn't look for it it's just this weird stuff happens to him and and he's like why am I but but what's happened is over the years having dealt with all these weird supernatural things is his credibility f- factor is is wide open you know when when weird when everybody else in town is going I can't understand it everybody's dying of blood loss what could it possibly be Rivera's like I think I we know what it is you know because he's just like I wouldn't have thought that the giant owl would have attacked the monster on the hill in the first book either but he's been through all this horrible stuff um but it makes him a much better he's very tired but he's, <laughs> but he I he, imagine <laughs> he believes when things when strange things happen and he doesn't freak out and he has a great relationship with Charlie in a dirty job whereas he he knows something spooky and weird is going on with Charlie who is deaf but he's not going to flip out about it you know <laughs> he's got other things going on and as it turns out we find out that he's also investigating this whole this book um and that's in fact he in the in dirty job which obviously preceded this book he actually comes to Charlie looking for details of what happened to this old man, and now we've found out in this book that this old man uh, was killed by Jody, and um, uh, euthanized is probably a better a better term. But uh, so uh, you know, the cops are just sort of weary, and I think they're probably cliche in a lot of ways because I mean, my father was a cop, but he wasn't a city cop, so most of what I know about police I've gotten from movies and TV. And and so you know I don't know I, you know when I don't know how cops behave in a morgue I just know how do they behave on crossing Jordan you know and uh, somebody did the research I assume along the line somewhere um, but I'm not I don't feel like I write crime fiction so my cops can be more about personality and less about procedure. Now you wrote Bloodsucking Fiends in '95 mm-hmm. and it was very popular with your readers and you I believe that they were asking for a sequel you set it up for a sequel right and you've been 
fielding requests for a sequel for 12 years now, or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, What made you finally accede to those requests? Well, you know, you say it's been very popular with my readers, but it wasn't um, initially released with... um, it had a hideous cover on it in hardcover, and it was it was released in a very small print run. So it didn't do well in hardcover. Um, the the publisher dropped the ball, and uh, you know I'm not saying that to sound bitter, although I'm sure I do. Um, I just they printed a, a a really paltry amount, and it didn't do well. And you can't do a sequel to a book that didn't do well. And so what I had to do was wait until my career recovered um, enough that I could propose it to my new publisher and say, look, I'm going to do this, and and I think enough people will read it just because they've read everything that I write. And so it's basically having taken 10 years to recover from the setback that Bloodsucking Fiends caused, um, I don't think due to the the story, but due to the the really sort of uh, malpractice of release by by the publisher at the time. So, because I think people who read the book were always enthusiastic about it, and they perceived that everybody would be. What they didn't realize is not that many people got to see it. But over ten years, the paperback had had garnered enough of an audience that this book would do well. And then my my books like Lamb and and a Fluke and a Dirty Job had been bestsellers, and so people recognized my name. And so I basically I basically could uh, had recovered enough and 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 had a big enough audience that you know I. Pretty much, I guess I get one free. I could just write anything and people would buy it. And this book has done really well, so I may do a third one. Because now I've set Abby Normal in motion and I, you know. Well, you can't she seems like a, Normal, She though. seems like a force that can't be denied, so I may have to write more about her. And then there's the the guy with the big cat. Right, Chet the Giant Shaved Cat, um, which we don't want to give too much away. But, you know, I'm sure that if this is ever made into a movie, it will be the ASPCA will definitely be all over this because we, <laughs> Tommy and Jody have their way with the Chet the Giant, the Giant Shaved Cat. When you start to write funny vampire books um, or come back to write them, you wrote uh, uh, the first book. Was Buffy the Vampire Slayer already in existence then? I think the the movie had come out. And not but, done very but, well. Yeah, the movie had come out, which I liked. Uh-huh. Um, but the uh, the show hadn't come out, and and uh, Josh Whedon is a is a brilliant guy, and so before I wrote this one, I got all of the Buffy's on DVD because I hadn't watched it over the years. The series I just you know didn't have time. It wasn't that I, it wasn't I didn't like it, um, and uh, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't using any material that that uh, Josh had written, you know, because he does write great dialogue, really funny dialogue. And so I watched, you know, what five years of Angel and seven years of Buffy on DVD, and you know what I couldn't get on DVD, I downloaded and and just to make sure. And I actually did have to change some of the stuff I was going to do in this book because it had been used as a plot in Angel, um, part of the. And I, it doesn't matter what it was because I didn't do it, but but and that happens, you know, if you're working in the same field, or you're you're bound to have. Uh, you're bound to have similar ideas, you know. You, you um, but. Uh, I, I would guess that that helped. There's also been a subgenre that of uh, kind of a chiclet vampire genre that's sprung up since uh, Bloodsucking Fiends, and I I sort of feel like okay, I wrote the first single girl vampire 
book and nobody read it, you know. But now it's it's uh, it's a huge best-selling uh, subgenre of of fiction in general. I mean, it does. I'm trying to think of the people who write in this it's paranormal um, romance. And, yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, what I I know. Uh, Hold Nancy Holder writes in it. And is she the one that does undead and unwed and? Uh, no, I think you're think. Is that uh, Kim Harrison? Kim, is one of- Kim Harrison's one, and I'm trying to think. Uh, Char- Charlene Harris. Charlene Harris. Yeah. 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 Um, and they're doing great. You know, they're doing great in a, in that sort of uh, chiclet uh, vampire romance thing. You know, and and you know, more power to them. Good. A lot of your humor. Uh, involves in the language, and I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the humor that's best read, as opposed to you know heard, and how how you play that because you avoid puns. Yeah, I don't I don't like puns at all. Um, I don't read my books as 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 you know uh, because we've you've forced me to read under much duress many many times, and I keep telling you I don't read. I've written essays on why I don't read aloud. I, I don't, uh, while I appreciate the music of language, I don't read my own stuff very well, and I, I think other people do. Fisher Stevens has read a couple of my books on audio, and he's done a terrific job. Um, I haven't heard the audio of this book yet. Dialogue is very much about meter and, and very much about timing, especially comic dialogue. And so there's a sound that you have to have in your head, and... I ha- I think I have a sense of how to put like the attributives, the he says and she says to allow for comic timing or how to put in a, a short piece of description to build to a punchline and so forth. I-, I guess that's what you're talking about. I also pick words that I just think sound funny. And um, and I I scour the internet for you know you know to the UrbanDictionary.com and to different sites that come up with neologisms because there are some great words and then I go you know like I, what uh, uh, oh I, I most of them are, are fairly obscene um, and Abby uses a lot of them but well, let's uh, hear them. Uh, <laughs> one that people have great great response to because I use it a lot to refer to the president is fucktard. Um, and, um, you know, some of the things like, you know, the, the, the tattoo that, uh, women get across the, their lower back is called a tramp stamp or in England, it's called a slag tag. Um, trying to think, uh, of some of them, but I mean, there's, there's just, uh, it's just a wealth of, of really funny stuff. That and also many of them that just sound funny, and I will go, you know, back through, you know, Shakespeare's oeuvre to to find words that I just think sound great, and and you know, it's it's easy. I, nothing's off limits except mean spiritedness, as far as I'm concerned in comedy, and and so if if I can crack somebody up because they come around the corner and come up on a word that just cracks them up, um, well then my work is done that day, you know. One of the things you're a master at is interspersing your narrative with the word fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a master of that. <laughs> I, I have my, my, my MFA in using the word fuck. <laughs> I'm wondering, when you write, do you have to go, when you rewrite, do you have to go back and like measure the density of, you know, like do a, a word search and find out how many times it occurs on the page and pull it out or put more back in? I, the only time I've ever thought about that was when I wrote Lamb and I had, um, 
I, I, I a couple of friends read it. My girlfriend read it in manuscript, and of, of all the sort of sacrilegious or, as I like to say, sacrilegious things that happen in Lamb, the thing that they couldn't get past was Jesus saying the F word. And I went, okay, if it's going to throw people out of the story, and that hadn't, I'd, I hadn't heard that before, other than, you know, from like blue-haired ladies and who cares. Um, the, so I, took, I went back and took it out, except in two instances, because if it was going to stop you from being able to pursue the story, you know, then I hadn't done my job. But other than that, I don't even think about it. Um, I sometimes, uh, I sometimes think, I, you know, I, I think I remember turning this book in and thinking, is there too much about breasts in here? Because there's a lot of breast scenes in here, you know, either from Abby Normal, who, who basically, you know, is angry because everybody has big breasts except her. Um, uh, or, you know, and then I, I just, but it turns out nobody is, I guess not, because nobody said anything. Nobody says, why do you have so many scenes, you know, that mention Hooters? I think a lot of it is that Tommy is 19 years old, and that's basically what he thinks about, you know. Center of his universe. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, then, and, and then. Centers. Yeah, and then, you you know, you deal with, you know, when Blue gets turned into a vampire, you have sort of her body getting rid of all those uh uh, non-organic accoutrements, <laughs> accoutrements, uh, uh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, enhancements that that she's visited upon herself. So there, you know, it. Anyway, my editor said, "No, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, people love tits." So <laughs> I think that's what she said. <laughs> Very Max Perkins in her literariness. Uh, so what's next? Uh, I am doing a comedy set in medieval England with Shakespearean themes. Wow. <laughs> That's a change I of wish, pace. I wish people could see your face. You're like, dude. <laughs> that was the total dude face. Um, yeah. It, uh, it's going to be really hard. And how, how, hard how are you going to work the Emperor of New York? Uh, not a San problem. <laughs> you know, not a problem. It's going to be something I haven't ever done before. And usually when I take on a project that is something I've never done before. I do pretty good work or at least, you know, cause it's hard cause I have to work hard and, and it's not, there's no, Oh, I did this before in this book or I did this before in that book. I mean, I have to, this a big challenge for this book has been trying to come up with the idiom in which to tell it because it basically takes place in, in medieval times. I'm not going to write it, you know, a la Chaucer, you know, in middle English. And I, and I certainly can't write it in Elizabethan English, even though it has uh Shakespearean themes to it. So I've got to come up with this sort of hybrid language that sounds to an American audience like it could be English, you know, British English, but is very clear and communicates and I get the timing of it. It's uh, the entire reason I'm doing the book is so that I can use the words wa- uh, uh, tosser and wanker a lot, just because they, I think they crack me up. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you mentioned that there have been some attempts to, to film... Uh blood-sucking freaks, uh-huh. and I'm wondering if anything is out there that is film, filmable that, is, that somebody's aiming a camera at. Not yet. Everybody, they've all been bought or, or optioned for film at one time or another, every one of them, and there's some great people who are interested in You Suck, and, and there's a, a deal happening, but a deal, I don't talk about deals other than to say they're happening because 
they've never panned out to a movie. I mean, I get a check and I get to, you know, you know, pay rent and fun stuff like that. But uh, even when extraordinary people have been involved, the things have never gotten to the stage of turning on a camera. So, um, I mean, I can tell you Chris Columbus has uh, a dirty job. You really? Know? Yeah. And that's, I couldn't ask for better talent, you know, than that. And uh, A good match, too. Yeah, and he's yeah he's a San Francisco guy, and he does the dark. Yeah, he's the man, and uh, you know. So I'm hoping things will happen, and uh, you know, some the lady, uh, Betty Thomas, is uh, acquiring USOC, and she's a great director. She did Doctor Doolittle, which was hilarious, and it was filmed in San Francisco. So she's got a handle in the city and and comic timing, and and uh, I know she's got like 20 movies, the Brady Bunch movie, and. You know, a bunch of, but they're all comedies and she gets comedy. And so uh, I'm excited about that. But other than my admiration for people who also like my work, it, it means nothing. It means nothing until they turn on the camera. And it doesn't mean that these people aren't good or, or earnest in their, in their efforts. It's just that it's such a huge rock to turn. Um, and people continually, uh, they come to my stuff saying, and I, I don't, I'm not the names I mentioned. This is usually the suits, um, saying it's not like anything we've ever seen before. And then when they get down the road in the development stage, the thing that always stonewalls them is they, how can we make this like everything we've ever seen before? You know, I just got fired off of a TV series that I was hired to create for that very reason. They came to me saying, oh, well, you know, we've never seen an imagination like this. If we could just take this, nobody's ever seen anything like what you could do for TV. And I did what they asked and when I turned it in they said if you could just make it a little more like lost and you know take the supernatural element out of it and, and everything oh my God. That, yeah all the stuff that I do well they didn't want you know <laughs> tell and us was, a little bit about this series it sounds great what, what was it what would you have what would it have been had you been had somebody sane been in charge well the initial the, the initial series I, I submitted to them as, as in outline was um and actually, they own this, so I probably am in breach of contract by even telling you. But it was basically sort of northern exposure set in Hawaii, and it was it was set around this guy who was pretending to be a uh, uh, a site archaeologist, which they have to have in Hawaii, you know, to keep from desecrating. Actually, they don't keep from desecrating grave sites of Hawaiians. They just have a guy that goes, yep, that's what that is. Bring in the backhoe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that'll look great. You know, it is, it's wildly sacred and it'll look great as a Walmart. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was about a guy who was doing that and he was running across, you know, sort of a lot of the Hawaiian myths were actually manifesting themselves in reality. And then there was just this goofy cast of, of characters that live in places like remote islands and, uh, a, a typical example, a typical typical episode would have been, you know, would they have uh, all these cane toads that they brought over there to eat, to eat the bugs? They the brought cane toads over. Yeah. How insane were they? Well, they wanted to, you know, it was a, it was a natural, supposedly insect control thing. Except the insects are diurnal and the toads are nocturnal, so they never saw each other. But we have a buttload of toads, <laughs> and um, and they get run over. So there's a lot of flat crispy dried toads all over these also happen to be the same toads that you can lick for hallucinogen effect so one of the episodes would be these two enterprising surfer guys decide to start a 
of mail order business, you know, flattriptoads.com, where they send off hallucinogenic toads in, you know, a eight, you know, nine by 12 envelope to different areas of the country, you know. And I just thought, yeah, okay, that I'd watch that. That's like must-see TV as far as I'm concerned. And uh, um, they didn't think so. So then they hired me to write one of my books into a uh, into a, a series. And um, Which book? I Want to Sequin Love None. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. they, they Pine Cove it. again. No, no, no. Actually, it's the one that takes place in Micronesia. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, right, about right. the cargo call. Yeah, I was, mm. um, and it's uh, it was not enough like Lost. Yeah, actually, <laughs> actually, my Hawaiian my Hawaiian series I called Found. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I don't, I'm not even sure what was wrong with, with Island of Sequin Love None, except that they kept wanting me to work on it and kept wanting me to work on it, and they didn't want to pay me to do any more work on it. And I was like, you know what, you guys? I don't have time for this if, you, if you're not going to pay me more. And they were like, oh, oh, oh. Anyway, it was it, – it, uh, it just – I need to let people who do that sort of thing do that sort of thing, and I need to go write books, which is what I do. And you do it very well. Oh, well, thank you. That was, I do. Uh, long years of studying. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, just to wrap this up. You know, when we first talked, uh, which was a few years ago, we talked about mid-list authors. Uh-huh. And, and that was still somewhat in existence then. And, and to a certain extent, that's, I think, where your publisher had, had placed you. And mm-hmm. I, and now that's absolutely not the case with you. you know? No. So tell us a little bit about how that feels as a as a writer to to achieve this kind of you know uh, rock star success. Um, it, it it's huge in some ways in that your credibility is off the scale compared to you know I'm a guy who wrote a book. Especially now that there's so much vanity press, it's very easy to do you know print on demand vanity press. So you, you know anybody who can who has a computer and five hundred dollars can publish a book um so uh, you know you never know there's no credibility anymore in saying yeah i have you know two books in print you know it doesn't even though the you know it was the guy down at kinko's that printed them uh, in in the publishing world you know i've been doing this for you know going on 20 years most of it as a midlist author and and i've been treated you know both sort of shoddily by publishers and really great by publishers as a midlist author i got to say i've been with my current publisher for oh god uh, going on 10 years now and they're terrific and they've always been terrific i mean they're the reason i'm now a best selling author as well as you know people finding finding them, um their way to my books but um the difference is you get to fly first class you know of uh, you know on your long flights, I'm still at the point where not on all my flights, but on my long flights, I get first class. Um, and you get to go basically where you want to go as far as, it, you know, if there, if BEA is in New York and you you want to go, BEA is the big um, national book convention for booksellers. And it's a huge uh, thing to be able to be in the same room with all the booksellers and all the people from the publishing company. Um, and I didn't even get to go until like four years ago. And but now if I want to go, I get to go because they got to send me because I'm you know a little diva now. Um, so it, it's just you just get a little more uh, a little more deference in the publishing world, which is a very small town. You know, as soon as you walk out of that big building in New York, nobody knows who you are, and the cab drivers are still rude to you, and you know you still don't order fast enough at the deli, and um, 
the there is a a little bit more recognition in the world. You know, I mean, I I now I've been recognized a couple of times. You know, and in twenty years, a couple of times is not a lot. It's not a big invasion on my privacy. Usually, it's when um, I don't want to be recognized. I was <laughs> I was in Hawaii going to the post office one day, and this little Jack Russell Terrier ran out in front of my car, and I ran over him, and um, <laughs> oh, and it, it didn't kill him. It just he rolled. It was a I, I was driving an SUV, which you had to where I lived in Hawaii. And and he sort of rolled under the car and got up really mad and started running at me like, I can't believe you ran over me, you know? And I felt horrible. Then he ran. And he was like, wait a minute, I just got run over. And he went, arr, 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 ran off into the jungle. And I was chasing him and his owner was after him. And and I, I was just completely chagrined because I, you know, I just run over a little dog and he was pissed. And, and as I'm running across this field, this there's, it, it was adjacent this outdoor cafe and this girl at this table goes is everything okay and i go i just ran over the dog she goes oh yeah i saw the whole thing it wasn't your fault and and she goes aren't you christopher moore the author <laughs> like yeah that's exactly when i want to be recognized that was the first time i was ever recognized out in the street was after i'd run over the little dog it's like, oh yeah he's the guy who runs over the cute little dogs and they hate him for it so there's a little bit of that but for the, the most part it's it's just um more uh, deference within the publishing world. You sort of get what you ask for. And you have to be careful at that point what you ask for because you'll get it. You know, I, for years you go, I want a full page ad in the New York Times. And they're like, yeah, that's going to happen. You know, and then all of a sudden you get it and you're like, oh, well, what if this doesn't work? You know, I've done some, now that they'll listen to me, I've done some really stupid things. You know, I did the stupidest angel version 2.0. Which, I love that. I know, but it did nothing but confuse most people. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got all these kind of uh, panicked letters. What's the difference between version 1 and version 2.0? And I said, well, we just did that to be cute. There's just a bonus chapter in it. But I, I couldn't believe how chagrined people were and confused by it because all of a sudden they thought, oh, do I need to download an update or something like that? So, you know, and that was my totally my idea. Um, and it was stupid. No, so, it was great. Oh, okay. Was, yeah, that's <laughs> what I meant. It. And it was great. Um, maybe not. Uh, not maybe not for the uh, guy sitting writing the checks, so. though. Yeah. Well, and for t- and the book did well. I mean, I mean oh. it didn't hurt the sales of the book. It was just sort of it confused people, and that's not what you're going for um, as a writer. But anyway, so that's a rather long answer of what it's like to be a best-selling author. You get to say I'm a best-selling author, you know. In, and, and what about the quill? Oh, I won! I won two of those. I won uh, two. I didn't, yeah, oh, really? I won best horror novel for Stupidest Angel, and then this year I won best novel. It was really funny. The coverage was the year I won for best horror novel. I didn't get mentioned in the coverage because you know it's horror. Mm-hmm. And this year, when I won for best novel, they didn't mention best novel in any of the coverage because, oh well, it's you know it, it's him. It was really funny. <laughs> I, it literally was not was not even <laughs> mentioned. You know, and the. The the best thing about the quill is its readers, uh, its reader choice, and so it's not that I have the most readers, obviously, you know, it's that I have the most enthusiastic readers. You know, I have readers that I communicate with on a day to day basis, but also, you know, they feel sort of a loyalty enough to you know make the effort to vote, and that was that was terrific. It's a terrific. Uh, that's the best part of the award. I mean, the award itself is kind of you know it's. 
sucks ass. It's um, <laughs> you know, it's this piece of lucite that fell apart with a piece of anyway. And I'd like to thank the academy for giving it to me. But um, no, the best thing about it is it's just an affirmation of the readers that say not only do I like this guy, I like this guy enough to you know find a website, sign on, and vote you know, for him. And, and so that's, that's been greatly gratified. And now they have two, I can actually use them as bookends, which is cool. We've been speaking with Christopher Moore. His new book is You Suck, He Doesn't. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.